All right. So, we are in the book of Acts. And if you're new here, you haven't really been here that much, we usually like to go through books of the Bible. And, and the reason we do this is because we want to not just preach the topics we like, but try to preach the whole counsel of God. So if you're here and you need a Bible, raise your hands, and some of our interns will come around and they'll give you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible at all, you can keep this Bible. But if you do own a Bible, you can just throw it in the back on your way out. Okay, so you can raise them high. We do this almost every Sunday. So don't feel weird about it. So we're here in Acts, and let's review what's happened, because we're only a few weeks in, and we're going to be in Acts for the rest of the year. And so at the beginning of Acts, you see these disciples hanging out with the resurrected Jesus. And they're hanging out, they're talking, they're being taught by him for a number of days. Most people think it's around 40 days, right? And Jesus is giving them some kind, kind of final instructions, and then he just ascends, right? He just flies away, and which I would have been a little mad if I were them, and they were definitely confused at the very least. But one of the things Jesus leaves them with is, hey, I'm going to take off, but in the meantime, stay in Jerusalem, wait, and pray for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so they do that. They stay in Jerusalem. And one of the disciples, you may have heard of him, Judas, kind of did some crazy stuff. So they had to replace him leadership-wise. And they, they, the way they do this, and I'm always perplexed by this, is they cast lots, which is like casting dice. It'd be like, hey, who's going to be a pastor here? Vince, is it here? Okay, uh, it's, it's Jake the intern. Oh, man. Um, like, like it, it would be like doing that. And so uh, they had some more qualifications there for sure because they've narrowed it down to two guys. But So they're doing this kind of stuff, kind of just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and they're praying. And then about a, a couple weeks later, they're praying, and these, this thing, these things like tongues of fire fly up over the disciples' heads, and they all start speaking in tongues. And their tongues are actually different languages, all kinds of different languages. And it says that they're, they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. And so they're there proclaiming these works. And we, at the end of last week, what began to happen was we saw that them speaking in all these languages drew a crowd. And, excuse me, part of the reason that was was because of Pentecost, and the, which was this big Jewish celebration where they celebrated when, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and gave the law to the people. It was kind of one of the big interactions God had with his people. And so yearly, the Jewish people from all over would come and celebrate. And so these people start hearing all these languages be spoken and saying these things about, about God, and it draws a crowd. And I want you to imagine that. Think about the last time you saw a crowd get drawn together, right? Like when I was in high school, we used to have something that always drew a crowd together, and it was a dance battle, okay? Like every time I was in high school, some beats would be dropping at the bell tower, and some music, and, and then the circle would form, and a dance battle would happen. And me and my friends, we always wanted to get in on it, but we didn't have as much rhythm as some of the dancers. And so we had to go in my backyard and practice these like choreographed crazy dance moves where we were like, oh, you're a stranger? Let's like dance together. And we would just battle and we would win because of our extreme practice. But anyways, I say that, one, to get you to know don't challenge me in a dance battle. And then two, 
just to envision this crowd forming around these 12 guys and see that the Holy Spirit is putting on his own dance party on Pentecost, right? And the Holy Spirit is speaking through these guys all these different languages. And the people in the crowd start to go, what does this mean? And some people go, oh, I'll tell you what it means, they're drunk, and I don't know, I mean, I've never been drunk. I've been around a lot of drunk people. They never just start speaking a language they don't know. Like, that's never, it's never happened. You know, they usually start saying some words I'm not used to hearing, but, but that doesn't usually happen. And so Peter kind of stands up. And so if you're with us today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. You can turn there. And we're going to be in verse 14. And so Peter stands up and says this, but Peter... Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter gets up and he says, all right guys, listen up. First of all, these guys aren't drunk. It's nine in the morning. And I, you know, which is a pretty, that's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't be drunk then. But I just imagine one of the hecklers going, but it's five o'clock somewhere. And, <laughs> but Peter has to keep going. And Peter is about to give us one of these, just one of his first sermon that we see. And he gives us this sermon unfolding and answering the question, what does this mean? What's going on? Okay, and John Stott, who's a famous theologian, and he he has a quote about this sermon that I think is really good, and it says this. He says, here then is the message. Two events as attested by two witnesses on the basis which God makes two promises on two conditions. We have no liberty to amputate this apostolic gospel. And so before we get into Peter's sermon, that's what we're going to see today. Peter preached it best. I don't need to preach it better than him. So we're going to really be in his sermon. But what we're going to see is two witnesses. We're going to see Peter use the witness of the Bible and the witness of the people there, himself and, and, and the other people there. And then we're going to see that he's talking about two events, which is Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And he says that these two events should lead us to two conditions, which is we should repent and believe. And then finally, if we repent and believe, we see two promises, which is forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's the sermon today. We're going to go through it, and then we're going to look at some takeaways for us as a church. So let's do this. Verse 16, Peter is going to start with one of the witnesses. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter starts 
with this first witness of the Bible, and it's particularly from the prophet Joel, and these words that God gave Joel to talk about this this one-day arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter answers their question right away. He says, right now, this is what is happening. It's what Joel talked about, that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is being poured out on us. And that word there, poured out, is usually used in the Bible to mean like a downpour of rain on dry land. So God's Spirit is just being poured out on the people. It's being poured out on the young. It's being poured out on the old. It's being poured out on the rich, on the poor. When it says those female and male servants, that was the word for bondservant, which was like slavery. It wasn't like our colonial slavery that we know of today, but it was a form of slavery. But God's Spirit is still poured out on them. And so Peter says, this is what's happening. And now in the next few verses, we're going to see him talk about the next witness, which is the people, him, those there. And he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so now Peter appeals to the witness that makes sense to them too. They saw these two events. They saw Jesus do all these signs and wonders, and if they didn't see it themselves, many in the crowd did. Or they heard about it from friends. They knew that Jesus was doing something. I think even a a historian named Josephus, who was not a Christian, referred to what Jesus did as magic. So Jesus was doing something, and these people saw it. And then they knew that he had been crucified. Some of them in the crowd, I imagine, were the ones that yelled, crucify him kill him. And then many in the crowd, like we heard a few weeks ago, 500 people saw Jesus resurrected. And so Peter is appealing to this witness. He says, you guys have witnessed this stuff. We have witnessed these things. Jesus is alive today. Sin could not hold him because, or death could not hold him because he was sinless. And so Peter is He's looked at these two witnesses. He's talked about the two events. And he's going to look again at the witness of the Bible. So verse 25 says this. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter now appeals again to their, they, they were all Jewish people, and so they believed in the Old Testament. That was like their Bible, and they believed in it. And so they look at this messianic psalm of David's. Because David, because he had this covenant with God, God used David as a prophet to prophesy this Christ, this anointed one, this one who would come and save all of Israel and all of the world one day. And he says, look, Jesus fulfilled this. His flesh never saw corruption. He never sinned. He didn't go down to Hades because he came back from the dead. And so Peter's appealing to this witness. He continues and he uses another psalm in verse 34. And it says this, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know how certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter begins to call again on this witness of the Bible. And we get into this kind of confusing verse that Jesus used of himself to say that he was God. And so Peter was a good disciple using the same verse. And the verse starts off saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And so you have God talking to God, and we just have to talk about this. This is confusing, right? And in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the Bible is monotheistic. That means there's one God of the Bible. But it's very unique because we believe in this thing called the Trinity, or you might hear say the triune God. And so we believe there's one God, but he's made up of three distinct persons, God the Father, Jesus, his Son, and the Holy Spirit. I wish I had some great illustration or analogy to say, like, hey, this is what it's like. It's like an egg or whatever. Like, but it, that's not it. That's, that's all I can say is somehow we have one God who's made up of three distinct persons. And throughout the rest of the Bible and the New Testament, that is confirmed time and time again. And so somehow this one God has a relationship within himself. So the Father the Lord said to the Lord, which is Jesus, and he talks. And you might get stuck on this where it says that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I got stuck on it too because it kind of sounds like he's saying, well, Jesus was just a guy, a really good guy, and God came and he said, I'm going to make this guy Christ and Lord and these things. But as I looked up in, into it a little bit more and I looked at that word, that word for made really means to like God has established, God has shown, God has brought about. And there's this just a unique dynamic in the Trinity where God the Father works through Jesus at times, where the Holy Spirit works through Jesus at times. And so I can see why Peter used this language to say that God made him Lord in Christ. And, and because God brought him to earth and God has now let him ascend and he's Lord over everything. And he was Christ because he was the anointed one saving us all on earth. And so the Jewish people, they would track with Peter. They would understand what he's saying, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He's, he's being explicit. Peter's being explicit about this as possible. And so we kind of see how they react in 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pause there before he goes on. So we begin to see these two conditions. Again, we cannot casually encounter Jesus. We cannot casually encounter Acts if we believe it to be historically true. We have to say, Jesus claimed to be God. His early followers claimed to be God. There were witnesses to the resurrection. There were witnesses to the signs, miracles, and wonders that Jesus did. And so we have to react and we have to ask ourselves, what do we do? And that's what they did. And Peter says, repent. Which just means turn from all your sin and turn to God. And then he says, and be baptized. And that, I think we get hung up on that too much as Christians. Because I think we think like that's how you get saved sometimes in certain circles. And, and Peter later in one of his letters essentially says like, listen, baptism doesn't wash the dirt off you. Baptism is an expression of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And so what he's saying is, it doesn't wash your sin off you literally. It's a, it's a declaration of your faith in Christ. And this would have been really radical to the Jewish people, baptism that is. Because when you were Jewish, you used to have to go to the temple and wash up and do all these things to get into the temple and encounter God. And you couldn't really do it. The, only the priests could. And so Peter was saying, you got to get dunked once and that's it. They would know that baptism was a metaphor and not just uh, something that the literal action is what saves them. And so if we repent and we believe in what Christ did in his signs and his wonders and his perfect life and his death and in his resurrection, then God gives us those two promises, the promise of his forgiveness and the promise of the Holy Spirit, two things I think we as humans desperately need. Forgiveness, I just know there's, there's like something in me that's always trying to prove myself, right? Even like my daughter and me get in these arguments where she'll be like, no, that's not true. I'll be like, yes, it is true. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. And I'm just like, go to your room, like, you know? And it's just these, and she's three. And it's just like, you're like, oh, maybe she's 14. She deserves it. But no, she's three, and so I just want to prove myself to the world sometimes, and I think a lot of us feel that, or we try to prove to the world we're good people, or this or that, and it's because we feel the weight of our sin, and what we really need is God's forgiveness. We need this, and how much more do we need God, the Holy Spirit? And so these, this is the message, that Christ died and was raised that we should repent and believe and we'll get forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. There's more to it than that, but that is at least the bones of the message. And so today I have three takeaways for us, three takeaways from this sermon. And let me finish up to how they react there. I almost forgot to do that. In verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So like I said, I have these three takeaways from us because Peter continues to preach to them, and he continues to exhort them, and it's not a fun message, right? He's like, turn away from your crooked generation. You are part of a crooked, sinful generation. Turn to God. The world, our world, tells us, hey, don't say that. Just say Jesus was full of love and unicorns. Like, that's what they tell us to say. But the message, there's this idea that we're broken and we need a savior and we need Jesus and we're sinful. And that's not okay, but it's okay because Jesus can come and he can save us. That was the point of being the Christ and the Messiah. And so that message on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. Right? I, that, that's crazy. All right? And so... I think after that, in that day, we see the birth of the church, really. And after that, we see all throughout the next, you know, 30 years or whatever of Acts, these P Christians living exceptional lives, as Vince described, not exceptional because they were awesome, but exceptional because they understood things about God and their salvation, and they understood things about the Holy Spirit. And so these takeaways are... Three takeaways that I think those people, those 3,000 people, also took away that day. And I think that if we take away those things as well, we can be an exceptional people. Not, again, because we are doing these awesome things, but because we are understanding truths about God that are important for us to understand and to image and reflect him well. And so I have three takeaways from us, for us. The first takeaway is this. God is the main character of the Bible. God is the main character of the world. God is the main character of the universe. God is the main character of your life. Right? In this sermon that Peter preaches, God is mentioned ten times. Jesus is mentioned five times. The Holy Spirit is mentioned four times. So the, the triune God is mentioned 19 times in 24 verses. God is the point, friends. God is who we are made to give glory to. And we need to get that because I, I fear that some of us have hijacked the Bible. We've hijacked the gospel. And some of us do it in subtle ways where God is actually just a supporting character, one of our favorites in our story where we are the main characters, and that frightens me when I see it in myself. Because God is the main character. God is the king of the universe. And if you don't believe me that this is something I think our society struggles with, is there's this book called, and bear with me uh, if you love this book, but there's this book called The Alchemist. And I've read this book, I've read it with students, and kind of the point of this book is... Uh, Let's find your personal legend and let's find where you're the best, where you're in control of your life, where you're the kind of Messiah type figure. And even the God character in the book is named Melchizedek, which is a very biblical name to represent God. And this character just is a supporting character. He's in a chapter maybe two and he just says, hey, let's make you better. 
And I'm reading this book with one of my classrooms one time, and all the kids in the class, I'm like reading it, and I'm like, this is heresy. And the rest of my class is like, this is amazing, Mr. G, thank you. Like, just like, they loved it. And I worry because I know some of us as Christians read this book, and we love it. And there, sure, there's maybe some good things to take from it, but I think it's hard when you make God a supporting character in your story. Because God has made us in our very identity as humans, to give him glory. And that would be messed up. That would sound like a megalomaniac if he wasn't the most glorious thing in the universe. Right? That would be messed up if he wasn't, but he is the most glorious thing in the universe. So if he creates us and we don't give him glory, he would be robbing us of the most beautiful thing in the world, but he's not. He's making us so that we can give him glory. And we don't like that. We don't like the idea that we exist to give God glory. But I thought about this. When I was in eighth grade, I was on a flag football team, which is like the pinnacle of my athletic abilities. And there was this guy on our team. His name was Chris Jones. And he was amazing. He was taller than everybody. He was faster than everybody. He could throw better than everybody, catch better than everybody. And early on in our football season, we just said, let's help Chris succeed. And we'll go far. And we went, I think, to the finals by just saying, hey, he's the show. Like, I think at a certain point, he started throwing touchdowns to himself. And, <laughs> and there was something good and true about us helping, like, deferring worldly glory to him. Because he was the best. God is the best. And he's actually created us to give him glory. This is a huge takeaway of the, of the early church. God is the main character. God is the main character of your life. You need to hear that and know that and believe it. The next takeaway is this. God is for everyone. God is for everyone. We see it in that picture in, with the quoting of Joel where God's spirit is poured out on everybody. It's no respecter of persons or types. And, you, and I, I love our church because I do feel like when I walk through our crowd, there's a lot of different kinds of people. And I, and I think we're just growing in that too. That, that makes me happy. But I do hang out with a lot of people here. And sometimes I hear things like this that make me think that we don't believe that God is for everyone. Like one thing I hear a lot is someone will be like, yeah, you know, I want to evangelize to this classmate or this person at my work or this teammate or whatever or whomever. But, you know, they're just, they are really a sinner. Like they really love sin. Like they're just eating sin sandwiches, right? Like, so I just, I don't know. I just don't know if he's ready, you know? And there's a wisdom to evangelism. I'm not saying just... But when we begin to think that God is for a certain type of person, we're beginning to say God is not for everyone. And we need to be careful of that. One of uh, this girl in our church this week was telling me how a lot of the people she hangs out with here at Redemption, she was just saying, like, I just feel like it's a kooky group of people I hang out with. And I was like, okay, great use of the word kooky. And... Uh, but what I loved about it was she began to say, like, man, this is not a group I would pick, but this is the group God has brought around me, and it's diverse and different, and it just displays this idea that God is for everyone if they repent and believe, right? So don't hear that as 
everyone has God because I don't think you have God until you repent and you believe. But God is for everyone. And the early church got this because on the first day, 3,000 people were saved where like 12 or 15 languages were just being heard and spoken. And so God is for everyone. We will be a radical church if we became a church where there was all kinds of different people, where there was young people, where there was old people, where there was that middle-ish age people, where there was men, where there was women, where there was people of all different skin tones, where there was people who dressed differently, because I see a lot of your posts on Facebook, a lot of you really hate on baggy pants, which gets me mad because I like baggy pants. And so what if people with baggy pants were here? That, that's the big point of today. No, and, and so listen, God is for everyone. That doesn't mean God is okay with everybody's sin, but God is for everyone. Okay, we need that takeaway. And the final takeaway is this. We are living in the time of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the third takeaway. We are living in the time of the Holy Spirit. There's kind of this crescendo to God's redemptive history and what he does. And if you're not a music nerd like me, or I'm not really a music nerd, but I was forced in band. And there's this thing called a crescendo, and it kind of looks like a greater than or equal than sign or whatever. Um, or whatever. And so it's like an alligator. And uh, it kind of goes like this in music. And in music, it starts off real quiet. And really good crescendos, you barely hear anything. And then it gets a, a little bit louder, and it gets a little bit louder, and it gets a little bit louder until there's just this great cacophony of beautiful music happening at the end. And you're just like, man, this is awesome, right? And that's a crescendo. And it really seems that God's redemptive story has a crescendo too. Because it kind of starts in the garden with a threat to the Satan. Just saying, I'm going to get you, right? I'm going to come back and we're going to crush your head. And then God gets this guy and he gets Abraham. And he, he makes, he says, Abram actually is his name at first. He says, hey, you're going to be kind of the father of my nation. And his wife is with him. And then they have one kid or, and another kind of kid we don't talk about. And... Um, and then their kids have kids, and there's lots of kids and cousins and all weird stuff happening with cousins. And they all are getting married, and they become a nation eventually. And they're this great nation of Israel. And we get to this point then where other countries kind of start invading and controlling Israel. And Jesus comes onto the scene. And so we see God. He's making this story where more and more and more people are involved. And then really God's reconciliation is about giving us more of him. And it works in a crescendo too. It starts with God and just kind of just saying stuff loudly to people. Hey, do this. Hey, do that. Go here, Abraham. And then it kind of turns into the nation of Israel where they have these priests and this temple. And this is where you would experience God is by going to the temple and through the priests and through these sacrifices and, and all these things. And then Jesus comes on the scene who is God in the flesh. And the crescendo is getting louder. And, and Jesus is actually saying, no, hey, this is what God meant. Actually, you guys messed that up. And and, and then Jesus lives and he dies and he comes back to life. And it's like, cool, you really are God. And then 
it gets to this point on Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and people are speaking all kinds of languages and now God is not just for this nation or for some other few nations, but God is for all of the nations because, and then God is gonna come and we all get the Holy Spirit inside of us if you repent and you believe, not just the priest, not just the nation of Israel, but everyone that repents and believes and there's this loud part of the crescendo and there's still more of the crescendo that we haven't seen. There's this day where God's going to come in glory and there's going to be trumpets, it says, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's going to be the loud blast of the crescendo. But right now, we live in this time of the Holy Spirit and it's a beautiful part of the crescendo. And we need to know that. We need to know that we have this beautiful part of the crescendo that we live in spiritually with God. We get to have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit is in you, friends. It's a gift, a gift that God gave all of us if we repent and believe. And that's honestly one of my favorite parts of the crescendo is that like 10 seconds before it goes big and really loud because you just are sitting there and in, in anticipation going, glory is about to come, my ears are gonna bleed, it's gonna be great, right? Like you're just like, yes, right? And it, almost, it, kinda, it just sounds so beautiful. And so that is where we live in this beautiful time and the early church, this was a huge takeaway for them. They realized that in God's redemptive story, they were in the part where they get the Holy Spirit. We're there, there in the part where there's no longer kind of this temple of God, but that we ourselves become the temple of God. We need to take these things away. God is the main character. God is the point of your life. God is for everybody now. And we live in the time of the Holy Spirit, and we should embrace that and love it and anticipate for glory to one day come. So let's be a church that takes these things away. And let's be a church that knows these things because I think if we think through this stuff, it should daily amaze us that we have a God that's given us so much of himself. Let's be thankful for a God who has this crescendo to redemptive history and we get to be right on the cusp. I'm excited about that. The book of Acts tells us that's where we are. So let's be a church that just sees God and what he's doing. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this, this crescendo, this crescendo of reconciliation, this crescendo of redemption that you've done, where you've kind of revealed yourself more and more to people throughout time and that we get to be a part of it. And so, God, we, we love you and we thank you and we need you. God, there's, there's three big takeaways from this sermon. There's, a, there's more than that. There's probably 98 or something, God, but there, there's a lot there. So first I want to pray for the first group. Maybe there's some of us that don't believe this. God, Holy Spirit, we live in this time of the Holy Spirit. Do a work in the hearts here that don't believe this. Cause our hearts to want to repent, turn, and to believe and what Jesus did. And the God I want to pray for the rest of us is I think, honestly, like we don't, we don't make you the main character of our story. We don't make the God for everyone. We don't make the gospel for everyone, God. 
And we certainly often forget that we live in the time of the Holy Spirit. And so God, I'm thankful that all through our acts, we're going to see how this looks. So God, I just ask and beg that you would move in our hearts, change our hearts, and also cause our minds to believe these things. Especially for those of us in the room that are having a real hard time with that. God, cause us to know you. Cause us to experience you through the Holy Spirit. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.